Hey, everybody. Thanks for downloading the show, and welcome back to the Clean Slate Farm Podcast. Hey, last show I mentioned I was going to try to catch an interview with a fellow that made chocolate, and I thought he made it from scratch. Well, he does make it from scratch. His name is Tyler Cagwin. Tyler owns a company called Nostalgia Chocolates, and he makes what's called bean-to-bar. So he gets the beans, roasts the beans, and he makes chocolate from scratch. It's amazing stuff. Tyler was good enough to join us for this show this week, and we're going to listen in. He's going to tell us how he does that. Pretty interesting stuff. Have a listen. Today we're talking with Tyler Cagwin from Nostalgia Chocolates in Syracuse, New York. Tyler is a chocolatier, and he is what's known as Bean to Barn. Bean to Barn, not Barn. I got Barns on the mind. <laughs> Beans, Bean to Bar. And uh, Tyler, can you tell us a little bit about that? Welcome to the show, by the way. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Dave. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, so Bean to Bar is a small segment of the overall chocolate industry. Uh, with typically smaller size companies, I mean, they get to be far larger than just myself. But our focus is really to introduce people to what chocolate really tastes like. And growing up and through most of our lives, we've been given a form of chocolate, and it's a pretty standardized flavor. So no matter what company you buy it from or where you buy it, for the most part, we know it as, especially on the dark side, notice slightly bitter, maybe a little bit chalky and dry, and pretty much all just has the same flavor. One company might be a little smoother um, than another company, but for the most part, we've just known one flavor. So what the bean to bar part is, is we're making chocolate right from the cocoa bean, and we're not mixing beans together for the most part. So for instance, my Madagascar beans or chocolate bars are made with just beans from a plantation in Madagascar, and I roast it in such a way that I really want to develop a flavor profile. So I want that to have a different taste than, say, my beans from Guatemala or the Dominican Republic. And so we work in smaller batches as we're roasting and try to figure out what the flavor profile of the bean should be. So similar to what they do with grapes or oftentimes with the coffee as well. I was just going to say that. It sounds very much like the coffee process where you harvest the bean, you ferment the bean, you dry the bean, you roast the bean, then you grind the bean. You're doing much the same thing then. Very, very similar process. And actually, coffee is you know probably 20 years ahead of our industry. And there's a movement right now to come up with a sort of bean rating system similar to what they use in the coffee industry. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what the kind of leaders in, in my world are doing is sort of mimicking what coffee has done in order to continue to better, you know, our whole industry. The, the, now you have beans from all over the world, correct? Yes, correct. And so the beans that I work with are coming from anywhere from Fiji, Madagascar, Dominican Republic, Mexico, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Peru. And I've, I have worked with um, the beans from Ghana, which I'm not using any longer. Uh, I still have some of the bars that I'm selling, but I don't, I, I haven't reordered those beans. Is that political or just? No, not at all. Um, it just was a, the, the bean to bar, um, companies that are like the importers are just now getting access to the countries in Africa. And so for decades, it's been the large conglomerate companies that have been buying the beans from there. And that's where you hear a lot of the stories of child labor or slavery Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And so now what the, the importers and the companies that are 
working on the bean devourer side are going in and trying to work with the farmers in Africa to better their fermentation process, better their sorting, better their growing procedures. And then I think the next step, and this is being held up by government issues, but I think the next step would be to help the farmers start to form more central fermentation communities so that okay. they get a, a more um, consistent product from the different farmers who are harvesting the cacao. Mm-hmm. But Right now, the beans, at least for somebody like myself who is doing everything on his own, they were very hard to sort through. A lot of them were broken and cracked. And as I'm sorting and getting ready to roast, I try to sort out as many of those beans as possible. So they may have already been slightly roasted during the fermentation and drying process. And potentially during the process of my end of making the chocolate, they have the chance to maybe add in some off flavors that I really wouldn't want in the chocolate. So we try to sort as many of those sort of not perfect beans out as possible. And it just was very time consuming. Yeah. And so for the just for the fact that I just don't have the time is really why I'm not using those beans currently. Okay. So And you said you're single sourcing, so you have Madagascar beans. That's all you have in your Madagascar chocolate, right? And Correct. Yeah, okay. I'm actually working on a um, – uh, so I, I've done some work for some of the local coffee shops, and my first blended bar that I'm doing is for Fojo Beans down in Hamilton. Oh, yeah, Dan. Yeah, yeah, the Dans. And, the Dans. Uh, yep, so um, I've been working with them for quite a few months making some sample batches, and we're now just actually making the bars. I have the first batch done. The batch that I actually need to work on today is a 50-50 blend of our Dominican beans and our Oco Caribe um, the Dominican beans from Oko Caribe, sorry, and then our Madagascar beans. So it's actually been kind of fun um, to do a blended bar, but for the most part, all of the other bars are just the um, single origin bean types. So, mm-hmm. okay. Now I'm going to ask you another question here, but before I before I do, I have to state that if anybody hasn't had a true artisan chocolate, uh, the first time I was introduced to that was in Toronto at a place called Soma. Uh, and I walked into this chocolate shop, and they had this grinder there, and they were gr- roasting, grinding, making chocolate from from the beans, just like what Tyler's doing. But if you haven't had that kind of chocolate, really search out Tyler's chocolate or 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 good bean to bar chocolate, and you will be amazed at the difference. Now I'm going to back up a little bit and start in again because we talked a little bit about the roast the the. Um, the growing process, how it's going to ferment and everything when the bean gets to you. And then you, there's a whole process that goes in after that. And talk about that because you have to grind the bean into cocoa and cocoa butter, correct? Uh, sort of, yeah. So basically when I get the beans, I in a, just in, in a kind of um, overhead view, I uh, like I said, I sort through the beans. That's probably the first step take out any beans, like I said, are cracked or look like they might be damaged. And then from there, I roast them. And okay. so we have a general roast profile that I start with for all beans when I start working with them. And then over time, I start to play with the roast profiles a little bit. And the roast profile, just like with coffee, if you roast too short, you um, – might not develop the flavor enough. And if you roast too long, you might overdevelop the flavor. So you can, just like with coffee, you can dark roast it, which is not Mm -hmm. optimal for us. Um, Or you can not actually, if you go too short, you might not eliminate enough of the kind of 
beginning stages of the volatile, what we call the volatile flavors or mm -hmm. astringency, things like that. Okay. So you're trying to find, and each bean is slightly different. So, um, you know, some beans require a faster, like hotter, shorter roast. Some beans, like the Mexico beans, require a slightly longer development stage during the roast profile. So after roasting, I then, um, I then we get to the part where you grind them up. So I have a um, specific juicer and I just pour, kind of pour, pour them down the juicer and then they get chewed up into um, a mix of nib, which is the actual chocolate, mm -hmm. and husk, which is the shell. So I kind of, for people to envision it, if you think of like a peanut, if you were to crush a peanut up in your hand, you get, you know, peanut and you get shell. And the shell, nobody likes to eat. So we need to separate out the shell. Okay. Like coffee, we get the husk, the, uh, the chaff. Yeah, yep. Exactly. Yep. So from there, I put it through what's called a winnowing machine, which mm -hmm. is a machine that has a suction on one end. And then the mix of the nib and the husk get poured down a um, funnel, basically. And then most of the husk gets taken out during that stage. So it gets separated. The nib falls down into a bowl. The husk goes into a separate, um, like, uh, bin sort of mm -hmm. thing. Yep. And then um, if there's any additional husk, I try to separate out as much as I can from there by hand or by um, running it through a screen. And then at that point, uh, it goes into the melanger or the – I call it a grinder. It's basically just a big metal bowl with a granite base and okay. two heavy granite wheels inside of it. And it's that's where the chocolate starts to kind of become what we know as chocolate. So it stays in that for anywhere from typically th – well, two to four days, but typically three days. And I work in four-pound batches of nibs, so it ends up being about six and a half pounds of total ingredients. Okay. And that's where it heats up and the nibs get um, beaten down. And so to answer your question about the, the chocolate salad and the cocoa butter, so a nib is basically on average 50% chocolate salad and 50% uh, cocoa butter. Okay. And so that's kind of where the debate becomes is cocoa butter, you know, in like white chocolate, is it technically chocolate? We can talk about that later if you want. But um, <laughs> uh, so the, co the cocoa butter separates from the chocolate solid, but then it all ends up coating itself. So as the cocoa butter heats up, it melts down the nib and then it becomes liquid chocolate. Mm -hmm. And that's where the um, sugar gets added. If we're making either our milk chocolate or oat milk chocolate on the vegan side, that's where the milk powder or oats get added. Okay. Um, and in certain cases like our cayenne pepper bar that I add the cayenne pepper in at that stage. So mm -hmm. it's um, it gets ground down in with the chocolate. So um, if there's ingredients that I want to be fully incorporated in the chocolate, that's where everything gets added at that point. Okay. And it's in there for about three days. And then after that, and at that is, point, is it it's still a, a, a liquid form? Yes. Okay. Yep. So typically by the time that it's done um, at that point, it's usually about 120 degrees. The milk chocolates get up to 130, 135 degrees sometimes. So they get pretty warm, and that's one thing you also sort of have to watch. Right, because you get uh, a burn flavor out of that if, you don't, if you're not careful. You could. No, correct. So you don't – I don't think anybody wants like a – you know, a smoky, burnt uh, oven sort of flavor. So you have to be somewhat careful when you're monitoring it. And during the three-day process, I taste the chocolate at various times, 
to check to see how the flavor development is coming along because sometimes it might develop a little faster and we might burn off the volatile flavors, the astringency, the bitterness, the Mm -hmm. um, kind of tartness of it. And sometimes it might take a little longer. So in the case of like when I'm making our Fiji bars, I found that if I leave it for an extra 12 hours or so, it, the, I'm getting slightly better flavor from it than I would if I left it in for the you know standard 36 or 40 hours. Sure. Yeah. Now I have so at this point you've you've roasted the bean, you've ground the bean. Now you're letting it sit for three days before I even get the look at that chocolate bar. Before you even get to look at it, we're like three or four days into this. Uh, yeah. I mean, when people ask me that question, they say, "Well, how long does it take to make a batch of chocolate?" You know, I say, well, the short answer, if you know, is three days. So if I was able to work super quick from start to finish and roast and cool and then get going, I mean, in theory, it's you know, at a minimum three days. But I mean, typically, it's you know, it's a four-day at least process. Um, wow. Especially, I mean, I, again, everything that I do is very small scale. So I'm roasting in two-pound roasts. So if I, you know, someday down the road, if I have a bigger roaster. There's ways to make the process a little bit easier, but it, sure. that's still it's still going to be about a four day process. Yeah, yeah. Then we should really honor chocolate bars even more than we do because that's and what you're doing because that's not an easy process. Anyway, okay. So I sidetracked us there. Uh, so now we've got the chocolate is is uh, melted for three days, and and you're what do you do from there? Where's it go from so, there? Yeah, so after that, then we start the process of tempering, which is kind of the oh boy, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the uh, it's the part that almost stopped me before I began. Um, yeah. But I've I've learned other processes other than the beautiful artwork that like French pastry chefs do mm-hmm. um, on ways to temper chocolate. So uh, it's a little bit. I've made the process easier. So basically, the, the process of tempering is you're cooling the chocolate to a certain temperature. And chocolate is – it just like with anything, it kind of becomes a chemistry experiment. So yeah. there's a bunch of different crystal structures that form in the chocolate. And what we're trying to get is all or as many of the crystal structures, like you think of rock candy sort mm-hmm. of. And we want to get as many of those into form five or the beta, beta um, crystal structure. And that form five has proven itself to be the – almost the most stable. There's form six, but it's the most stable with the best flavor. Mm-hmm. And and that form is what gives it its snap and its shine. Yep. So if you've ever opened up a bar of chocolate and it's maybe kind of hazy mm-hmm. or it has some like cloudy just that little not, bloom on it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's that would be bloom. So that and it's happen- not bad. It doesn't mean that it's bad. No, it just probably doesn't have all the flavor that it could. So right. For like when I'm making um, couverture chocolate for – I'm working with a few restaurants in the area and mm-hmm. making chocolate for their desserts. And when I do that, I just pour it right from the melanger. So it goes from liquid chocolate into a hotel pan and then I cool it. And so oftentimes when I take that to the restaurant, that's got different swirls and different patterns and mm-hmm. um, it's actually very beautiful. But it looks almost like yeasty. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like uh, a, it's like a piece of artwork, modern art. It's beautiful. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. It really is. So, but so we want to avoid that for the daily consumer, and mm-hmm. so tempering eliminates that. And if a bar is properly tempered, it gives it its shelf life as well. So, um, typically, 
makers put their expiration dates on their chocolate bars at about a year. And so as long as the chocolate has been well tempered, then it should, you know, it should be shelf stable with no issue for close to a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't put my dates out that far just because I don't want somebody to open up a bar at a year. I'd rather, you know, put right. it at maybe you know, six, seven, eight, nine months. And who and wants then, to keep a piece of chocolate for a year? I couldn't, it doesn't, it doesn't last 15 minutes in my house. Well, I think more than people keeping it, it is when stores buy it in large quantities. So yeah, okay. dealers, mm-hmm. and it ends up sitting um, on their shelves and maybe not kept in like, uh, ideal conditions. Yeah. It might be kept in the front of the store where it's getting sunlight or so who knows? There's a whole host of things, but that, I think that for, my experience has been that's typically where the expiration date situation comes into play. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about tempering and I'll, I'll tell you a little story. When I was at the culinary Institute, uh, back in 2003, we had, uh, many of my chef instructors were certified master chefs and we had one fella, uh, who eventually went to work for Wegmans as a matter of fact, uh, who was a certified master pastry chef. And he came in, he's going to tell us how to, Temper chocolate, and he's got this big marble slab, and he melts the chocolate, and he pours it on to the marble slab to start cooling it from one temperature to another temperature, and he's just with spatulas, just flipping it back and forth. And he says, "Okay, now we're ready to do the next process," and he's pouring it in molds, and it's like, "There, we're done," and it's this perfect, gorgeous chocolate. Now, this guy was a certified master pastry chef, which means he's like the pope of the chef, chef world, but it's not that easy. <laughs> you just don't say. Now we're done because the temperature range for tempering is very minimal. It's like a couple of degrees, and you can mess it up. Yeah, if you're doing it the artistic way, it certainly is. And um, when we the first batch of chocolate that I made, it was with our Costa Rica beans, and I went out and I bought myself like a a scrap of a marble slab, and from like a, a marble counter uh, yep. company, mm-hmm. and That's I got it home. Yeah, and I, it was nice and cool. I did the whole thing, tempered, cooled it to uh, like 88 degrees, and then I had other chocolate that was cooled to 82 degrees, and then I mixed it all together, whatever it was supposed to be, put the bars in the fridge, cool it. They came out great, and I was like, oh, man, like this is this is not so bad. Every All these videos <laughs> I watched and through this whole course are just saying tempered. Well, the next probably 10 batches I had to retemper like four or five times, sometimes more, to even get it close to working. And then most of those bars fell out of temper within like a month. Yep. We'll get back to Tyler and his ill-tempered chocolate in just a moment. I just wanted to remind you, we have a YouTube channel as well as the podcast. And we have there's cooking videos, beekeeping videos, all kinds of stuff on there. Kind of fun. Also, if you're going to shop on Amazon, you should be shopping local to begin with. But if you're going to shop on Amazon, if you could use our link, amazon.com slash shop slash clean slate farm, we get a small commission for all those sales and it helps pay for all this audio equipment that we have to use here. So we'd really appreciate that. Now, let's get back to Tyler and find out what happened with his chocolate. So at that point, I was starting to get really frustrated because... I was at that then I was over researching and confusing processes. Yep. And so right about at that time I had gotten um I had submitted an application to go out and apprentice with my wife and I joke we call her Yoda. Um but she, her name's Mackenzie Rivers. She's a chocolate making genius. She's based out of Eugene, Oregon right now. Her company's Map Chocolate. 
we, we lost Tyler there for again for a second, so Tyler's going to back up. So you were saying Yoda in Eugene, Oregon. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Mackenzie Rivers, her company's Map Chocolate. But she's based in Eugene, Oregon, and she's just an incredible genius with chocolate. And she does a lot of education stuff for people who just maybe want to make chocolate at home or maybe are chocolatiers and want to make the jump to chocolate making, all sorts of different things. But um, last year she was offering apprenticeships. And right about this time where I was just about to rip all my hair out from tempering, <laughs> I got her newsletter and I quickly applied um, at the urging of my wife, applied for this apprenticeship. And I went out and spent two weeks with her in Eugene, Oregon, and it was completely chocolate making life changing. And so the way that she tempers chocolate is almost foolproof. I say almost because you can still mess it up. But yep. it makes it a lot easier where you're cooling the chocolate just to one temperature. You use some extra cocoa butter as what we call seed. That's already been tempered. So you've tempered that already. You um, stir that in with the chocolate once it reaches a certain uh, temperature. And then very quickly and easily the chocolate comes into temper and I start molding and I'm on my way. So – it took what was a true chemistry experiment um, into something that is at least like a very, very minor chemistry experiment. Yeah. I, the seed uh, chocolate is a great idea because I would imagine the process there is that you've got the crystalline structure in the seed. And it's not a seed. It's just a piece of chocolate that's properly tempered. And then the rest of the chocolate starts building off of that. Yes, exactly. So as I put the seed in at that particular temperature, the temperature has started to kind of bring some of the form one, two, three, and four crystals, it, like kind of sort of calm them down, so to speak. But when I put the the cocoa butter that is all in form five, that is such a powerful crystal structure as compared to the other ones that it sort of grabs all of them and brings them along for the ride. And once it starts, it thickens a little more and then at that point, you just kind of, I always, I still do. I just cross my fingers and you just start, um, I, I, I mold from, um, a la I ladle everything into the mold. So I don't have a machine. Yep. So I'm just ladling and molding and then wrapping the bars to kind of, um, flat them out, get them to fit the mold, get out as many air bubbles as I can from the chocolate. And then mm -hmm. they go into a little refrigerator and they cool for, uh, at least an hour. I tend to leave them in for a few hours just to be certain that they're cool before I take them out of the refrigerator and put them onto some trays. Yeah. Boy, the process you go through is a labor of love, and I will never eat another chocolate bar from Nostalgia Chocolate the same way. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's just that's a, it's a reverend process. It's so, so wonderful. Yeah, it it is very time consuming, but you know, I've I've often thought like I sit back and. I try to think of like a part of the process that I don't like. And I think the only thing that would come close to that would be the dishes at the end. Yep. But I don't think anybody really likes to do dishes. No. But really the whole thing is just – it's really a fun process because each, each batch, even with the same beans, is always a little bit different. And even when frustrations come up, it's kind of – it's a fun process to work through them. And I mean – Really, what you can do with the chocolate is almost limitless. Yeah, and I would imagine that as you become more familiar with with chocolate and the process, uh, like anything else, you get to learn. You'll see something happening. It's like, oh, this is starting here, so I have to make this a little adjustment. And right, it's like right, cooking. Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah absolutely. The garlic's absolutely. burning. You better turn down the turn down the heat. So you probably have the same process going on there. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah. So that's neat. That is a wonderful thing. So let's talk just a little bit about you started a chocolate business and what are the challenges? Of, because part of the reason I do this podcast is people who may want to start a business or who are looking to do their own business. Uh, what are some of the challenges you had to getting into to starting your chocolate business other than the whole process thing here? Yeah, so starting a business was I knew I knew it wasn't going to be easy, um, but you've really got to I think find a love for wanting to start a business mm -hmm. first of all. The and you've also got to know really firmly and be honest with yourself about what your limitations are. So uh, one of the examples I give to people is early on I I tried very hard to save money by not hiring someone to create a website. So. We started our website off on one um, one platform, and we had the whole website done. I paid for the whole year, non-refundable, and then realized that at the time our like our card processing system didn't work with that website hosting company. No. So I said, "Oh, okay, fine. There's you know whatever annual subscription out the window." So then I found another platform that supposedly did work with our card processing system that I use at the farmers markets. Well. When I started to try to sell online, which started a few months after I started selling at farmer's markets, I realized that the only thing that that card processing system would do with the website is just run cards. You couldn't track inventory back and forth. There were, it was very limiting. So yeah. I realized that like in the long run, that wasn't going to be super efficient because I needed to know what I had here and what I had there. And I didn't want to track two inventories and trying to keep up. It just wasn't going to work. Yep. So then there was another annual subscription out the window. So we ultimately settled on Shopify and I just use Shopify's whole platform, including their point of sale system. Mm -hmm. And, but I, I cr basically the Shopify website platform wasn't quite as easy to create a nice looking website as the other two that I had used previously. So I did something that was good enough, but then realized that it needed to be a little bit better. So at that point, I hired a friend who owns a company. Um, his name's John Timmerman, and his company's Good Monster. And they do a lot of that stuff, especially in the e-commerce um, sort of world. So, yeah. but looking back on it, you know, if I had just started off with him, uh, I might have, I might have paid a little bit more. Maybe by little, I mean maybe like one or two hundred bucks. Yep. But it would have just been one shot one and done and it would have saved me a lot of time and something that instead of wasting all the time and my wife was a major help with the first two websites mm -hmm. but um, taking all the time we did to make those could have been put towards Making other things fun. right or yeah. just like sitting back and taking a break for a second exactly. so I think the biggest thing is just knowing knowing where like where your energies truly need to be placed mm -hmm. and um Doing, I, I thought I did a lot of investigation, but I clearly didn't do enough on on that side. So yeah. I think you know an example like that. I think that's probably the biggest thing is we think we're saving money in certain places. But you're not. When we, what exactly when we start a business? But really, in the end, if you look at kind of figuring what your time cost is and what you're spending on, you know, subscription fees mm -hmm. and I don't know all sorts of things. Yeah. So it's a small. I think it's the small business uh, startup trap is that you don't really have money to to have somebody do it uh so you figure i'll do it myself 
And in the end, what you do is you you go around in circles a couple of times and realize right. that the time I just spent, like you just said, the time I just spent trying to get this work properly, I could have been spending on my marketing efforts or my, my manufacturing process or uh, my certification processes. And you end up wasting time and money. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And it's amazing how many businesses that are out there that have started to grow that still don't see that. That as the owner of the company, you need to focus on on the company growth and making sure the product is right. But there are many, many, many things that you can delegate out to other people. And it's worth it because it allows you to focus your time on growing your company. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and if, if, yeah, if there are those things that you can... Um, you know, it's, it's worth doing as long as it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's good. So Tyler, thanks very much for talking with us today. It was really great conversation. And, uh, can, where can we find your chocolate? I know I, I see you at the market once in a while and I, I know where it's located, but you're in retail locations around town. Yes. Yeah. I have a handful of locations. Um, some of them are out of the chocolate right now, but um, Salt City Coffee Roasters, they typically always have it down on uh, West Onondaga Street, 20 East in Casanova, Perry's in Hampton. Great shop. 20 East is a great oh, shop. Awesome. Mackenzie's wonderful. Awesome. Yep. yep. Um, Perry's in Hamilton, um, Sweet Dream Candy Shop in Baldwinsville. Um, Sweet Praxis has it from time to time, and Fojo Beats will have their own special bars coming soon. Um, so it's, it's all over our website. I'm working on trying to get a page up, um, on our website, uh, so that people can find it. The, and currently, um, St. Urban restaurant just on Dell street, just off of yep. Westcott street up by SU, which is a absolutely fabulous restaurant. They're I hear using great it. things about that. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. They're using it in their desserts. And I've just started with Paul Messina at a pizza regional. And they're using it in their Budino Italian. Um, oh, great. It's like an Italian pudding dessert. So, yep. uh, And then I've got a couple other um, restaurants that will be coming up uh, shortly. I've just started kind of making some test batches for them. So Now, will you be at the Sky Armory Night Market? I, I Yep, I sure will. I haven't officially signed up yet, but that's my plan. I should probably do that today. Yep, and that's what we're doing. I'll be at the, I'll be at the Buy Local Bash um, as well. And... Um, Fingers crossed, I might get to another farmers market or two. But you can—I try to keep everybody posted um, on, like, on our Instagram, certainly, and then I try to send out, you know, monthly or every other month newsletters, and people can sign up for those on our website. Great, terrific. Well, Tyler, thanks again. I'm going to be posting. Uh, we just mentioned the Buy Local Bash and the the Sky Armory Night Market. Uh, I'll post those so anybody who wants to go to those, it's really great, two great events uh, here in central New York. I will post a link to those so you can find out where and when those are in the show notes. But, Tyler, thanks very much for taking your, your morning out. I'm sure you had better things to do than to talk to me. Uh, and... No, this was, this was a lot of fun, Dave. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, no, I really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah, it was good. Thanks again, Tyler. We'll talk to you later. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. You bet. Well, that was a great interview with Tyler Caglin of Nostalgia Chocolate. I really enjoyed that interview. Tyler's got great product. If you get a chance, go find it and try it. You're going to love it. One last thing before we go. If you could, on iTunes, leave us a review and like a rating, that would help people find us. We'd really appreciate that. Help spread the word. And that's it. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.